Genesis chapter 26, I want to begin reading in verse 23. Genesis 26, beginning reading in verse 23, Then he went up from there to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. I want to use for a thought this morning the keys to victory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I ask you one more time to anoint these lips of clay to minister your word to your people. God, I pray that you'd anoint every ear to hear, every heart to receive. Father, I pray this morning, God, that you would hide me behind the cross. Speak through me to your people today. God, let not one thing come out of my mouth, God, except that which has been authored and anointed by you. Father, I ask you right now, Lord God, that you would cause your word, Lord, to penetrate our heart and our spirit today, God, and I pray that this would be a life-changing word for your people today, and Father, we give you the praise and the glory for everything that's done. In Jesus' name we pray, and the church said, amen. You may be seated this morning. I want to talk to you about three keys to victory. Now, it doesn't take us living very long to understand that everybody wants to win, now listen, that's a safe place to say amen. You gotta you gotta you gotta learn to find those safe places to say amen. Everybody wants to win. I've never seen anybody that woke up one morning and said, Man, I hope I lose today. Because nobody wants to lose. Everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to be on the winning team and on the winning side. Amen. Everybody wants to have the victory. But it doesn't take us very long in this life to understand that while there will be days of victory, there will be some days that don't feel like we have the victory. There will be some days where we feel like we're not winning. I'll be honest with you, and you know, sometimes I think we get so to the point of not just being real that we present something as if it's uh, always something wrong with me if I don't get it like everybody else has got it. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. There will be even times and seasons in life when you feel like you're not winning. It may be days. There may be weeks. God forbid there be months. And really and truly, God forbid, it be years where you feel like you're not winning. But the reality of it is, 99.9% of the time, now here comes the place you don't want to say amen, but it's the truth. 99.9% of the time when I'm not walking in victory, it's because of something I've done. It's because of something I've caused. It's because of some place in my life that is lacking. And it's something that I've not 
uh, done or maybe I have stopped doing or maybe I have not uh, done as faithfully or as devoted and dedicated as I've needed to. Amen. But I want to talk to you this morning about three keys to the victory. And we're going to use these three verses of Scripture to talk about this. Let me just lay some groundwork this morning. Here's something interesting I've come to find out. Isaac was the son of the famous father Abraham. And the father of the famous son Jacob. Thirteen chapters in Genesis are devoted to telling the story of Abraham. Ten chapters are devoted to the story of Jacob. But Isaac's story is told in just two chapters. Chapter 24 is the account of Abraham finding him a wife, Rebekah. And the 26th chapter is dedicated to Isaac. However, Isaac's life was no by, by no means insignificant. Just because it was only two chapters dedicated to his story does not mean his life wasn't significant. He was a child that Abraham had waited for for many, many years. He was a child of promise. He was a miracle baby. He was conceived by Sarah who had given up Hope on ever having a baby. He was a miracle child who was conceived by his mother Sarah who had given up hope of having a baby who was well past childbearing years. She was old. Abraham was old. But they had a promise. Something changes when you have a promise. Something is different when you have a promise. It don't matter how long it seems ago it was. If you have a promise, you've got something to hold on to. It doesn't matter how all the deck is stacked against you and it doesn't seem like it'll ever come to pass. If you've got a promise from God, you've got something to hold on to. Even today, the Jews speak of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac is even listed among the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Being the son of Abraham was not his key to success. He carried on the line of God's plan. He was used by God to set apart the next generation. But being the father of Jacob was not his key to success. Isaac lived a life of faith for himself. Why did I say all of that? Because you're not going to remain faithful because of the faith of your grandparents. You're not going to be blessed by God because of the faith of your parents. You're not even going to be blessed by God because of the faith of your pastor. You've got to get it for yourself. You've got to have your own faith. The reality of it is, listen, I heard somebody say this one time, and you know, you hear something and... and, and if you've never heard it before, it's got to sink in just a minute before you truly understand it. I had this couple come and they sang for us and he was testifying about his salvation experience and he made this statement. He says, God don't have any grandchildren. God doesn't have grandchildren. Nobody goes to heaven because their mom and daddy went to heaven. 
Nobody's saved because mom and daddy was saved. It's our own experience. We gotta have our own faith. Why am I saying all of that? Because you can't have victory because mama had victory and daddy had victory. You can't have victory because grandmama had victory and granddaddy had the victory. You gotta have your own victory. You gotta have your own faith. So the fact is that Isaac's life was not just hinged upon Abraham and his accomplishments or Jacob and his accomplishments. Isaac had his own faith. Isaac carved himself out his own place in history. And there are three things in Isaac's life that are symbolic to the necessities for anyone who desires to live a life of victory. And we're about to look at this. I want to focus on verse 25. If you're able to throw that back up on the screen, you can just leave that up there because I'm going to go back to it several times. The Bible says, So he, he being Isaac, built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So let's dive into this verse. The first thing that I see is that Isaac built an altar. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. This was a time of great difficulty for Isaac. God had greatly blessed him in the land of of the Philistines where he was living. The Bible even says in verse 13, And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. But it didn't stop there. Verse 14 says, For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. The Philistines were envious of Isaac. And because they were envious of Isaac, they filled in his wells. Their king Abimelech said to Isaac, Get away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So he began moving from place to place, and he encountered opposition and conflict until finally he came to a place called Beersheba. If you read down through 18, verse 18 through 22, you'll find out that Isaac would dig a well and the Philistines would come in and fill the well up. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That'd make me mad. I'd get angry, brother. If I had dug a well and then the enemy come in and filled it up, I would go dig another well, but probably not till after I'd hit them in the head with a shovel. Well, you got to eliminate the opposition. Why do I want to keep digging wells? Right? But he would dig a well and the enemy would come in and fill it up. Until he got to a place called Beersheba. Now, I'll talk to you about Beersheba a little bit later. But you see, when he got to Beersheba, this was the place that God spoke some assuring words to him. This is what God said to him. I am the God of your father Abraham. Why is that important? Because Isaac knew his father Abraham and Isaac understood the relationship that his father had. This verse, or this statement rather, further goes to solidify what the word says in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what God was saying to him was, as sure as I was the God of your father Abraham, I'm going to be your God too. That's what he was saying. Then he says, do not fear. 
For I am with you. You're not alone. <laughs> I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So in response to the revelation of God, here's what Isaac did. Isaac built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. Why is this important? The altar speaks of dedication. What are the three keys to victory? Key number one is you need an altar. The altar speaks of dedication. Isaac knew about altars. When Isaac was just a boy, Abraham took him up Mount Moriah and laid him on an altar. And it was on that occasion that the Lord was testing the dedication of his father Abraham to the point of sacrificing Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, two young men and the donkey are traveling up to Mount Moriah. They leave home one day to do something that only Abraham seems to have fully been aware of. You better hang on, because this is going to get good in just a minute. But back in chapter 22, verse 3 reveals that when he called him to the altar, Abraham only took with him the things conducive to the experience. He took the wood, he took the fire, and he took a knife. He had streamlined to cut out, to cut to the basics of what he needed to take. He, he was not weighed down with a lot of excess baggage. Watch. How many of us feel like we can never get a prayer through, we can never get a praise through, because we're carrying around things that God never intended for us to carry around? We weigh ourselves down to the point to we feel like we can't pray. We weigh ourselves down to the point we feel like we can't lift our hands and worship. Excess baggage hinders our worship. Listen, what does this mean? Let me talk to you about David real quick. Quick side note here. David went out to fight Goliath the Philistine, but David was never intended to fight the battle. He was only the instrument that God chose to use. David prophesied and proclaimed, the battle is not mine, but it is the Lord's. So the reality of it is, it was not a fight that David had to fight. All he had to do was be willing to go. Sometimes all you need to do is be willing to go to the altar, be willing to praise and let God take care of the rest. Be willing to submit yourself to the altar, submit yourself to praise and let God do the rest. He cut out the excess baggage. Too many drag with them hurt feelings, egos, pride. Well, I can't worship because that one's here. I can't worship because what so-and-so said about me. Hello, somebody. You say, well, preacher, I'm not there now. No, but you have been, and if you haven't been, just wait, you'll be there. Right? I can't, I can't because of what this one did or what that one did. Well, I have a revelation for you this morning. Our worship doesn't filter through anybody. Our worship does not filter through any person. It doesn't filter through some so-and-so in the church, through some word that somebody said, but it goes straight from the heart to a holy God. 
I refuse to let anybody hinder my worship. I refuse to let anybody hinder my praise. Whatever you have to do to get alone with God, to get by yourself with him, find a way to get your worship pure in heart straight to the Father. So what they're talking about you? They talked about Jesus. Hello? Our worship is pure and it's personal. My worship is pure and personal between me and the Father. If you're not worshiping because you're mad at the preacher, then you have the problem. It ain't the preacher that has the problem. You have the problem. Why are you saying this? Because I know how the enemy works. The enemy works by allowing things to come up in front of us and then we pick and choose how we want to respond to them. Because some of us need a crutch to hold on to to validate how we feel. I'm not mad at anybody but the devil this morning. But the first key to victory is to get all of that out of your mind, to get all of that out of your heart, and say, I'm going to walk into the house of God and I'm going to worship Him with everything I have if it hairlips everybody in the building. I don't care whether you like how I worship. I told somebody one time, I said, if you don't like it because I get a little active in my worship, then I pray the Lord lets me stand right next to them. And maybe to rub off on them. You know what? If we were all worshiping and praising, we wouldn't know how somebody else was worshiping and praising anyway. They act like they don't have any problems. They act like they don't have any trials. They act like they always have the victory. You know what? It's not a matter that I, that I always have it, but you need to act like you always got it because I know the one who's got it. Hello? Let me move on. Paul and Silas. Didn't have much to be praising about. They were thrown into jail. It gets worse. They were not only thrown into jail, but they were jailed for doing the work of the Lord. They were working for God and got thrown in jail. But long about midnight, they had a prayer meeting. They had a worship session. And the earthquake came. The jailer was going to kill himself fearing that the prisoners had escaped and the Bible says that he was saved in all of his household. Why? Because somebody worshipped in the midst of a crisis. Somebody worshipped at the midnight hour. Somebody prayed when they shouldn't have been praying. They could have been mad because they were in jail for doing the work of ministry. But instead of getting mad, they got motivated. We need some folk to stop getting mad and get motivated. Motivated to pray. Motivated to praise. Build an altar one more time. Pray one more time. Praise one more time and see what God will do. Put the excess baggage away and worship Him. Listen. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. When it came altar time, Abraham had time. It's another sermon for another day. The Bible states on the third day, it reveals that it took Abraham three days to get to the place where God, where he could see where he was eventually going. He dedicated his time to his experience. 
Here's the point. When we yield our time to God and become less time conscious, our experience will become much more meaningful. When we realize that God's not governed by time, when God does not move according to the hands on a clock, then our experience becomes more meaningful. Here's what Abraham said to his young men. You stay here with the donkey. Me and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. It reveals that when it came altar time, Abraham separated himself from those who just tagged along for the ride. When it came time to get down to business with God, Abraham separated himself from the tag-alongs. He made a clear distinction between those who came to worship and those who came to maintain donkeys. There are donkey maintainers in every church. They've not come to worship. They've not come to be involved. But then there's the Isaacs. They're waiting to be led up to the mountain to worship. There are the Isaacs that'll say, Father, let's go. Take me to the altar. Teach me what it is to worship. There are those that no matter where they come from, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've walked through, and no matter where they're headed, they have time to go to the altar and worship. And those who have time to go to the altar and worship are majority of the times the ones who live in victory. I've come to tell you today that God is anointing worshipers. He's not anointing donkey maintainers. He is, he is anointing people who want to get involved and worship, not those who just want to sit back and spectate. Isaac knew what it was to worship. Abraham made it clear the lad and I will go yonder and worship. We're going to go yonder and worship. And we're going to come back. If we're ever going to truly worship God, we have to understand that there's a place for Him to be worshipped. We have to understand that there are times that we need to separate ourselves from the donkey maintainers and get along with God. Not everybody has your best interest at heart. Some folk want to hold you back. My goodness, I got to hurry. I'm only on key one. We've got to rebuild an altar. Separation from those that are not serious about worship. Doesn't mean you don't love them. It just means that if they're not serious about it, they're not conducive to the experience. Some people go to church and count the holes in the ceiling tiles. We don't have holes in the ceiling tiles. I was sitting in a place the other day. My wife and I left, and I began to give her some meaningless, fast facts about the place we were at. She didn't ask for them, but I felt like she needed to know. I said, you'll be happy to know there were X amount of lights in that room. You'll be happy to know that there were 
and I began just, just crazy facts as I'm sitting around the room and I was, I was counting just certain things. The Lord brought my mind back to that experience that day right here. That there are times when we walk into God's house that we are distracted and we allow ourselves to be distracted by everything going on around us. When our mind is supposed to be on Him. Our worship is supposed to be dedicated to Him. Completely to Him. In spite of all of that, there are people who aren't caught up in trivialism and nonsense. There are truly people who come to God's house to worship God. There are those who want to separate themselves from those who are tagging along and hitchhiking. There are those who could care less how good the music is. They could care less how good the preaching is. They could care less if every chair is in a straight line. They could care less if the temperature is the right setting in the building. They could care less about anything. They just want to worship. They don't care if there's a light bulb out. They just want to worship. I believe we should do everything we can to be excellent in God's eyes with everything we do. But I'm going to be honest with you. Because everything is made up of human beings, there's going to be some days where the music's not on point. There's going to be some days that the singers aren't on key. I've been doing this long enough to know. There are going to be some days when the preacher ain't on point. There are going to be some days when he preaches some bad sermons. Hello. I have walked to the house. I don't know that I've done this here, but there have been times I've went home after a service, Brother Mike, and I've looked at my wife, and I've said, boy, I fell flat on my face today because I didn't feel like I had preached worth a flip. Thank you for not saying amen. <laughs> then, <laughs> oh. there have been times that I'd go home and feel like I'd hit a home run. But it always seems like the times that I felt like I fell flat on my face was the time somebody called and said, Pastor, I needed just what you said today. What are you saying? I'm saying there are going to be times when the preacher ain't good. And it's okay for you to agree. I know I've preached some bad sermons because I've listened to some of them. It's okay if the preaching ain't good today. Maybe it'll be good next week. Pray harder for the preacher. It's okay if the music's not on point and the singers are off key. Pray for them. Maybe they'll be on key and on point next week. Regardless of anything else, the main thing I need to do is know when I come into this house, my worship is not dedicated upon how good the music is, how good the singers sing. My worship is not going to hinge upon how good the preacher preaches, but my worship is going to be keyed on the fact that God has loved me enough to reach further down that I can reach up and pick me up out of the deep miry pit of sin. My worship shall be dedicated upon the fact that when nobody else that's going to help me. God stood in the gap for me. 
My worship does not depend on anybody else. Now I get it. When the music's on point, the singer's are on key, and the preacher's got it together, it makes everything easier. But I'm going to tell you something. I've come to learn that there are times that what you hear makes your ears bleed. I was sitting in a service one time, and after the service, a man came up to me, and he said, Pastor, he said, I don't understand something. I said, How's it? What, do you, what do you not understand? He said, you were worshiping, but the singing was terrible. And I said, let me tell you what I do. I said, the first thing I do is I close my eyes. Because I don't want nobody to see. I don't want to see nobody. I close my eyes. And if I know the words to the song, I'm going to sing the song. I don't care how good it sounds. Because nowhere in Scripture does it say that I'm supposed to enjoy somebody else making a joyful noise. But I'm supposed to make a joyful noise. Right? Let me move on. Here's the deal. you got to have an altar if you want to be victorious. Not only, not only did we have an altar here that shows dedication, but we had this dedicated altar that no one understood... The cost of full dedication more than Isaac. He found himself tied on this altar. He understood what it was to be dedicated. Paul the apostle implores us in Romans 12.1 I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service. An altar is all about sacrifice. How many of you would be honest And raise your hand and say, sometimes, Pastor, it's a sacrifice to worship God. It is. But it's all about the sacrifice. I don't worship Him because of how I feel. I don't worship Him because of what I've got. I worship Him because of who He is. The altar-less life, which is a deserted altar, you find in the life of Lot... There were no altars mentioned in Lot's life. The reason his life was messed up. Listen, we've got to have a dedicated altar. A husband who is dedicated only 85% in faithfulness to his wife is not faithful at all. There's no such thing as part-time loyalty to Jesus. Let me ask you a question today. Do we need to repair? This is a personal Reflection. Do I need to repair the altar before the Lord? I got to move on to steps two and three. Step one is if you want to be victorious, you got to have an altar. But you can't just have an altar, but you got to have a dedicated altar. Here's the second thing. Verse 25. He built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. If you want... To be victorious, not only do you need a dedicated altar, but you have to pitch a tent. Why do you need to pitch a tent? Well, let's look at what pitching a tent means. Pitching a tent, where did he pitch the tent? He pitched a tent in Beersheba, where he heard the Lord's voice. He met with God in that place, so he decided to pitch a tent. 
He decided that he would lodge where he heard God. He decided he would reside where he heard the voice of God. We should always want to stay in the presence of God. I don't know about you, but I want to be where God's speaking. I don't care about all the other fluff. I don't care about all the other, the other eloquence of speech. I want to be where I hear the voice of God. And Isaac built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. And there he pitched his tent because he was in God's presence. Watch. Now I have to state the obvious here. Notice what he did. He put up a tent. He didn't build a house. A tent speaks of detachment. The reason Isaac was in Beersheba was because this was where God was speaking to him. God had brought him here. If you read the preceding verses, you'll find out that he was in some other places. And I talked about this briefly. Where he had dug wells and the enemy had come in and filled in the wells. And he kept moving along. He kept moving. He didn't stay there where contention and strife and, and, and fighting and bickering and arguing was. He kept moving. And when he found the place where God was speaking, he pitched a tent. God brought him here, and if the presence of God should move and lead him elsewhere, he was ready to go. Here's another sign of his dedication. His house was not some geographical location where all of his possessions were established, but his home was wherever God was and his will were found. A tent speaks of detachment. A tent speaks of detachment. It's like you and I, we need to be detached. We are pilgrims passing through this world. We cannot allow ourselves to be attached to the things of the world, entangled in the things of the world. We've got to start pitching tents and stop building houses. My goodness. We must be detached from the world's praise. If you were here Wednesday night, we talked a little bit about this. Glorifying God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things of the world. Verse 17. The world passes away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. He pitched a tent. And guess what? If God moved, he had the ability to pick up his tent and go somewhere else. He didn't have anything to tie him down. Well, God, I've got my nice house. I've got all my possessions. I've got my two-car garage. And I've got my, got my fenced-in backyard. And I've got, I've got the plush green lawn. And I've got the puppy dog running around. And everything's grand and glorious. I'm living a comfortable, happy life. If you get comfortable, you better get ready. God's about to move you somewhere. He didn't build a house. He pitched a tent. Which simply said, God, if you finish here, I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to follow you. When God gave the instructions to build the, the brazen serpent on the pole, so those who were snake bit looked upon it, they were healed. King Hezekiah, the young king who came into power, destroyed the very thing that God used. Read it. It happened. Why? Because God wasn't working in that anymore. 
Let me get finished here. He pitched a tent. It speaks of detachment. Verse 14 says he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great store of servants, and the Philistines envied him. Verse 16, And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. Verse 17, And Isaac departed, pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar, and dwelt there. He was constantly, Isaac was constantly being chased away. He could stay and fight, but wisely he decided to move on. There are times in life when circumstances will cause us to move on. Some things were not meant to be conquered, only survived. We've all gone through tough times. We've got to know when it's time to move on, when it's time to make a change. We've got to adjust to what God's doing in our life. We get comfortable. And when we get comfortable, we don't want nobody to mess with us. But we've got to adjust to what God's doing. Isaac didn't get hostile. He accepted what God was doing in his life. Sometimes we just need to learn it's time to go. It's time to move on. When God allows circumstances in our life, don't get angry and frustrated. Just place yourself in His hands and know that He's taking care of you. Here's the next thing I noticed. Every time Isaac moved places, he dug a new well. Every time he moved locations, he dug a new well. Until finally, he settled in Gerar. Gerar means to be drug, dragged off. Maybe he felt like God was dragging him from here to there. Maybe he felt like about the time he got everything comfortable, he, God was moving him somewhere else. But he landed in Beersheba. Why is Beersheba important? Let me get down here and talk to you about the third key and I'm done. Not only did he build an altar, he pitched a tent But when he got to Beersheba, he dug a well. His servants dug a well. Let me go back. The Lord appeared to him the same night. Verse 24, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, I am with you. I will bless you. I will multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Don't miss this point. If you have tuned me out to this point right here, listen, you need to hear this. Beersheba literally means well of oath. Well of oath or well of promise. It also means well of seven. And as we know seven, God's perfect number, it's a sign of completion. He placed him in a place where he would dig a well and he was made a promise. Why is the well important? The well speaks of the word and of Jesus. The well, the fountain of living waters. It speaks of a place of dependence. A person who meditates on the word of God shall be, as described in Psalms 1-3, a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. For Isaac, the well of uh, the well was the place of promise. It was a place that God had given him a word. Listen. For Isaac, the well was a matter of life and death. It was a matter of digging or dying. He could have given up 
And he could have said, I've built a well over there and the enemy filled it in. I built a well here and the enemy filled it in. I built a well here and the enemy filled it in. I'm done digging wells. But he'd have missed the promise. It was a matter of digging or dying. He had to have water. In, that, in the Middle East, he had to have lots of water. The same is true about God's Word. We will die spiritually without the Word. We will die spiritually without the fountain of living waters. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. For you and I, it's a matter of dig or die. I said it's a matter of dig or die. Just as the water is essential for life, the Word and Jesus are essential for your victory and my victory. There's a whole lot we can live without, but water isn't one of them. You see, we tend to take our water supply for granted. Running water's only been around for a few decades. They used to have to go out and pump. Now we walk to the sink and we turn the faucet on, and it's at our disposal. We can run as much as we want, as much as we need. You can even choose between the luxury of having hot water and cold water. We are dependent upon water. And the same is the case for the child of God. We are dependent upon the Word. We are dependent upon Jesus Christ. Perhaps Isaac could have found a number of other oases. But he knew his father's wells. As a boy in times of drought... Verse 17, 18 says, Isaac dug again the wells of his father. Why did he have to redig the wells? Because the enemy was coming along and stopping them up. Now I'm going to preach right here. This is talking about heritage. We've got some folks with some heritage. You're where you are today because mom and daddy lived a life in front of you. And grandma and grandpa lived a life in front of them. And great-grandma and great-grandpa lived a life in front of them. They dug some wells. And as you were growing up, you realized the wells they dug produced some water. It produced some life-sustaining substance. And I'm just here to tell you today that in 2023... The wells that have been dug by the forefathers are still producing water today. We need the well of the word. We need the well of the Holy Ghost. We need the well of praise. We need the well of the altar. We need to get back and redig some wells. Sometimes the enemy's gonna come in and he's gonna stop up the well of the word. He's gonna stop up the well of the Holy Ghost moving. But I'm here to tell you, if God can find but one that's willing to pick up a Holy Ghost shovel and dig one more time, pray one more time, praise one more time. Just get back to digging a well. Your life depends on it today. He redug the wells of his father. He witnessed the faithfulness of Abraham going up Mount Moriah. And he said, the same God that put a ram in the thicket is the same God who's going to help me dig another well. We get so flabbergasted. We get so down and out. 
We just want to throw our hands up and quit. I'm here to tell you, God is not looking for quitters. Because quitters never win. But God is looking for some winners. Because winners never quit. I don't care how hard the ground gets. I don't care how long you've been in the drought. I don't care how little rain has fallen on your life. You better hear this preacher. If you got to find a jackhammer to jackhammer through the hard dirt, you better start digging somewhere because your life depends on it. Dig an altar. Dig prayer. Dig the word one more time. Praise him like you've never praised him before. Praise him if nobody likes it. Praise Him if nobody helps you. He learned the wells that his father Doug had something to produce. You need a well of joy. You need a well of promise. Get the shovel and start digging. I said get the shovel and start digging. You'd better have a dedicated altar... Before God, you better have a detached tent because God may move you from place to place. That doesn't always mean in a geographical sense. That could very well be a spiritual sense, moving from place to place to take you deeper than you've ever been. But I'm going to tell you something else. Not only do you need a dedicated altar and a detached tent, but you better have a dependable well. And I'm going to tell you, there's not a well the world can offer you that will be as dependable as what God can offer. We've got to detach from the world and dig into the well. What does that look like? Pray one more time. Pick your Bible up and read it one more time. Preacher, you don't understand. It's been a struggle. It's been difficult. It's been hard. Do it one more time. Do it one more time. Do it one more time. Because you never know the breakthrough that's coming one more time. And I can promise you, if you'll be faithful to keep digging a well, you will hit water. You will strike water. And the Word will do what it needs to do in your life. And the water will do what it needs to do in your life. Stand with me all over this house.